Father, we are so thankful for your goodness. We're thankful, Lord, that your word teaches us that you do run after us because you love us. And Lord, I, I pray today that through the power and the leadership of your Holy Spirit, that we would have the courage to turn to you, that we would choose to overcome that which causes us to doubt and shrink back from trusting your plan for our lives. Now, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through your word let your spirit bring us freedom today, and may we flourish in a way that brings you glory. It's in the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are talking about flourishing, and what we've said is that flourishing is really about the well-being of the soul. Last week, we discovered that one of the facts of flourishing is that it flows from our identity. One of the facts of flourishing is that it flows from identity. We, we, we hear a lot of talk about identity today. It, it is excessive. And what we hear is that we, we are encouraged that if we get comfortable and confident in who we believe we are, then we will flourish as people. But that is a clever deception. It's a clever deception. See, it's not about who we think or who we feel we are. Flourishing is about, it, it can become our reality when we come to grips with who God created us to be and perhaps more importantly, who God says we are. That's when we flourish. It is our identity in relationship to Jesus Christ that gives our lives a sense of purpose and meaning. Now, according to the rules that we've established for flourishing, soul-level flourishing outside of Christ is impossible. Okay, according to the scriptural truth, outside of Christ, soul-level flourishing is impossible. Without Christ, we languish. But by God's grace, we have been made sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. By the way, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are lots of things, but you are a son and daughter of the, or daughter, son or daughter of the King of kings. And I'm not confused, I promise. See, when you're in Christ, God sees you as, listen to this scriptural list. He sees you as his child, his friend, his joy, his delight, his handiwork, his righteousness, his saint, his ambassador, his soldier, his body, and his bride. That's who Scripture says you are. That's your identity. And understanding how God sees us in Christ should change the way we live. It should change the way we live. See, when the world constantly tells us that we are not enough, 
We're not rich enough, not smart enough, not good-looking enough, not funny enough, not famous enough. It, it, it all, it makes all the difference in the world to know and understand what God says about us. Who God says we are. God says, listen, you are mine. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are His. You are loved and valued and absolutely nothing is going to change that. Now the reassuring message is that, if we, that we aren't defined by our mistakes or our weaknesses, but we are defined by who God says we are. And it is, it is our knowledge of our identity in Him that provides us with exactly what we need to flourish. Now I want you to think back to that list I just gave you about who the Scripture says we are. I slipped one in there that may surprise you. Okay, it, it doesn't usually make a list like that. See if you can pick out which one it is. His child, his friend, his joy, his delight, his handiwork, his righteousness, his ambassador, his soldier, his body, his bride. Which one surprises you the most? To me, it was soldier. Soldier, right? In Christ, we are soldiers in God's army. In Christ, we are soldiers in God's army. When Tim Paul wrote to Timothy, he said this in 2 Timothy 2.3, Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, remember, we're talking about flourishing. We're talking about flourishing because of our identity in Christ. And yet, right there, Paul says... Uh, Okay, you, you might be suffering as you flourish. Look at it again. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Listen, we are, all of us, all those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, we are soldiers in God's army. Now, if you are outside of Christ, you're not a soldier. There are things that you are outside of Christ that the Scripture says the way God feels about you, the way He relates to you. But there are some things, if you are outside of Christ, that you are not. For instance, you are not a son or daughter of God if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You are created, you are loved, you are the apple of His eye, but you're not a son or daughter. You're not a soldier in his army. You are not his righteousness. You are not his body. You are not his bride outside of Christ. Now, everyone is loved. Everyone is invited to come in. But not everyone is a soldier. As a matter of fact, the Scripture tells us that if we are not in Christ, we are actually, here's your identity apart from Christ. Okay, you ready for this? You're an enemy of God. That's what it says. We are enemies of God because we are working, if we're not in Christ, because we are working against the king's will. But in Christ, we are soldiers in the enterprise of advancing the boundaries of his kingdom. We are soldiers that serve our king's 
will. Now, there, there's a passage of Scripture in the book of Ephesians that, that pulls back the curtain on the implications of our identity as soldiers. And, and I venture to say that it's a passage of Scripture that many of you have read, but probably have never thought about it in these terms. So it, it's in the book of Ephesians, and if you have your Bibles or you're looking at the Scripture on your phone, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. Now remember, we are reading this in context, understanding that he is referring to us as soldiers of the king. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. This is how we got there. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. Now, because of the way God sees us as the supreme objects of His great love, He has done two things for us, for those of us who follow Jesus, that Paul points out in that passage of Scripture. First, he says, God made us alive in Christ. How did He make us alive? When, when were we dead? He says we were dead in our transgressions. Okay, that means that if we are living with unforgiven sin because we haven't trusted Jesus' death on the cross to forgive us, then we are living dead. We are, in, we are dead in our transgressions. So the message is that even though we are dead because of the wages of our sin, God loved us so much, which we just sang about, that he gave us new life through Jesus Christ. It, it was an act of amazing grace. Why is it amazing grace? Because we don't earn it and we don't deserve it. So first, he made us alive even though we were in sin. Second, he said God raised us up with Christ. Now I want you to think about this. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Now, we're, we're really going to unpack that astounding fact in just a moment. But I want you to think about it. Put it in front of your mind. God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Okay, first I want to address that it's critical that we realize these are two byproducts of God's grace, his love, and his mercy. And they are not just our reality in heaven. Okay, we tend to read passages of Scripture like that and we think, oh, that's what God is going to do for us when we cross over. But the fact is, what Paul was revealing to us is our reality right here and right now. We are alive in Christ right now. 
God sees us not as dead in sin, but alive in faith. And because he is our heavenly father who loves us, who pursues us, he has accepted responsibility for our lives and the well-being of our soul right here, right now. He wants us, he wants you to flourish today. And he's equipped you to do so. But that's not all he has already done for us. The astonishing truth is that God has past tense. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he has raised you up with Christ and, amazingly, seated us with himself in the heavenly realms. Really? Paul did not say he will raise you up in the last day. He did not say he will raise you up when you cross over from death to life. But he has raised us up. What in the world does that mean? There there are two ways to look at this, okay? And both are true. On one hand, God sees your journey as complete. We are, by virtue of the fact that we have been raised up, we are in His presence and we are flourishing. Now that's mind-boggling to us, not, not just because our feelings might not confirm that notion. Not just because we are experiencing circumstances that cause us to be convinced that we are languishing, but it it blows our minds because of the way it presents God. It presents God as existing in a state that we literally can't fathom. How does it present God? He exists outside of time. Have you ever thought about that? Everything we do, everything we think about, is it's moving in time. There's the past, there's the present, and there's the future. So it's inconceivable to us that God sees the beginning, the middle, and the end of our lives right now. Right now. From that perspective, God sees that our work is done. He isn't waiting on us to become who we are to fulfill our mission. From His vantage point outside of time, because He raised us up with Christ Jesus, we already have. We are all those things He says we are, even though... There may be no proof. We are who he says we are in faith. We are who he says we are if we're in Christ Jesus because we are forgiven, because we are his delight, because we are his saints, the scripture says. That's on one hand. Because God is outside of time, he understands the end. He sees it. 
On the other hand, this scene boggles our minds when we understand it from the first century context in which Paul was writing. In that time, listen to this, in that time to be seated with the king was the highest honor that a citizen soldier could attain. Seated at the king's right hand was the seat reserved for conquering heroes. When the hero would return to the capital city after victory, a celebration ensued. It was a precursor to a ticker tape parade, okay? People would flood the streets. There would be dancing and singing. It was mayhem welcoming their hero home. Then, at the peak of that celebration, the king would ceremoniously invite the hero to sit at his right hand. Now, remember, Paul says... If you're in Christ, God has seated you at his right hand. Paul uses that imagery to describe what God has done for us and how he celebrates our victory. We know that any conquering... We know that the major conquering was actually done by Jesus, right? How did it happen? It happened when Jesus defeated the enemy, when he overcame sin by submitting to death on the cross. Jesus is the one who fought the battle against the dark forces of evil on our behalf and was raised victorious from the dead. We know that. But the crazy plot twist is... What Paul is pointing out here, it is that God gives us the hero's welcome. You know, it's interesting, by the way, if you read Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was being stoned to death and he looked into heaven, what did he see? Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Was he making room for Stephen to be seated? Was he making room for us to be seated? He has raised us up with Christ and seated us at the right hand of the Father. Listen, let's just be honest about it. We can take no pride in this because we really didn't do anything to deserve it. We actually, by God's grace and mercy and in His love, we receive the gift of triumph over death by faith and Christ did everything he won the battle and yet the scripture says by God's grace he seats us in the victor's chair at his right hand now let me ask you a question do you live like you're seated in the victor's chair it's your identity it's my identity Do you believe about you what God believes about you? As soldiers in God's army, by God's grace, we are all of us conquering heroes. As a matter of fact, Romans 8.37 says that we are more than that. You remember what it says? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Listen, 
one aspect of our flourishing demands that we see ourselves as God sees us. Effective, conquering soldiers who have been graced with victory over our enemies by Jesus Christ. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And we need to embrace that identity because here's what we know. Winners flourish. When we know we're winners and we're living like winners, we are flourishing. But, there's another side to this. Because even if we know all of that intellectually, and even if we believe all of that, we don't always feel like winners, do we? I mean, let, let, let's just be honest about it. Sometimes we feel like we're doing anything but winning. Here's what we need to understand about flourishing. While God sets us up as victors, while He sees us as victors, He gives us, through the process, the potential to flourish. As a matter of fact, He says, you are. But, we have to understand it is our responsibility to nourish our souls into full bloom. That He doesn't do for us. For us to live in the victory, we have to choose to live in the victory. And if we are going to flourish from this perspective as soldiers, there is one thing we must choose. Always one thing. Courage. Courage. We know that for a soldier to be victorious on the battlefield, even in the presence of fear, they must choose courage. Courage. Fear not. Now, many of the commands of Scripture and most of the wisdom revealed in Scripture are directions for how we can nourish our soul to flourishing. Okay? And let me ask you a question. Do you know what the most common command in Scripture is? Okay, you, you would think that it was to love because Jesus said it's the most important command, right? But that's not it. You might think, well, it's probably read the Bible because that's where we get inspired. That's not it. Maybe it's to avoid pride because we know that pride is, is what continually wrecks us. But that's not it. The one command in Scripture that occurs more than any other command is a two-word command. Fear not. Fear not. In his book, Facing the future without fear, Lloyd Ogilvy pointed out that there are 366 fear not verses in Scripture. That's one for every day of the year, including leap year. 
God's got us covered. What should I do? Fear not. God says over and over and over again, fear not. Do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous. What is the exhortation? It is to trust Him. Why does God say that over and over again? Because the reality is that when we think about fear, it's like, eh, not preferred, but what's the harm? Right? It doesn't seem like the most serious of vices, does it? it? It's not in the seven deadly sins. No one's ever been disciplined in church for fear. So why does God tell us to stop being afraid more often than He tells us anything else? I'll tell you what it's not for. It's not to spare us from emotional discomfort. That's not the objective. Rather, it's because fear sabotages flourishing. Fear is the enemy of flourishing. Fear keeps us from following God wholeheartedly. As John Ortberg says, fear is the number one reason human beings are tempted to avoid doing what God asks them to do. And we know without question, Scripture says, the joy of the Lord is our strength, right? It is joy that we experience in God that gives us the vigor of victory. And when do we experience that joy? When we choose to obey. When we follow the call of God on our lives, we know that our souls sing and therefore we flourish. But because God's call often leads us into the great unknown, because it asks, God asks us to do something that we're not sure we can or, or we aren't guaranteed the outcome, in fear, we shrink from the task. In fear, we avoid obedience. Think about it. Most of us have some, um, something that God has revealed for us to do that we just, mm, we just can't get there. Why not? Because we're afraid of what might happen. Okay, we, we've, we fear giving God our money because have you noticed the price of gas? Like inflation is crazy. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not going to choose obedience. We fear being witnesses of our faith in Jesus because the world says that we're crazy and we're intolerant. And I, I, you know, I, just, I don't want to face that kind of rejection. I'm afraid. We fear... Losing control, not being able to call the shots. We fear following God, and our fear prevents us from singing, wherever He leads, I'll go. Fear is the number one reason people choose not to obey God. And fear... is the enemy of flourishing. 
You know, when God appointed Joshua to fill Moses' shoes as the leader of the Israelites, Joshua obviously didn't think he could pull it off. I mean, he, he, he couldn't even begin the journey that God had for him because of his fear in believing who God said he was. His fear actually stood between him and his destiny. So what did God do? He gave him a motivational speech. He instructed him to choose courage. Look at Joshua chapter 1, right in the beginning, verses 6 through 7. Joshua, listen, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. He had to believe He had to believe that he was the one God had chosen. We have to believe that we are the one God has chosen in our sphere of influence. You know what believing that is? It's courage. Joshua had to choose to to trust that God would be with him. That is courage. He had to live by faith. That too is courage. Listen, Joshua overcame his fear and stepped into who God said he was. He was the leader of the people. He was the commanding soldier. And what did he do? He led Israel into the already occupied promised land. How did he do it? Because he chose courage instead of fear. And let, let me tell you something. Courage doesn't eliminate fear. It overcomes it. We choose courage in the presence of fear. If there's no fear, we have no need of courage. He chose courage instead of fear, and he stepped into his identity. He stepped into God's call on his life, and he flourished. Listen, flourishing begins when we choose faith over fear. We step into our identity that God has graciously established for us, it's the beginning. We begin that journey by choosing courage. But it doesn't end there. Courage doesn't just get us going on the road to flourishing and then our courage battery never runs out. If we're going to live the journey of flourishing, courage must be a constant There's always a call for courage. There's another story in Scripture that makes this point beautifully. You you remember uh, after Jesus fed the 5,000, He wanted to spend some time alone with His heavenly Father, so He sent the crowds away, and then most importantly, He sent His disciples away. He told them, look, y'all, just go across the lake. Get in the boat and get going. I'll join you later. Well, before dawn... Jesus decided that he would join them. He wanted to catch up. So he followed along behind them. How? Walking on the water. 
That's what he was doing. He was walking on the water. Now, there are two instances in Matthew that we learn of paralyzing fear in this scene. First, when they saw Jesus... I mean, can you imagine? When they saw Jesus walking on the water toward them, the disciples were naturally afraid. Why? Well, that's not something you see every day. He was walking on the water. Natural. Actually, that fear wasn't even a problem. It was just real. Sometimes fear, is, it's just there. It's instructive. It's informative. Matter of fact, God gave us the ability to fear things for times where we can escape. There are good reasons to fear. There are good reasons not to. And it's the second instance of fear that's instructive for us. Jesus is walking up and they're freaking out, understandably. And he calls out to the crew and tells them, hey, guys, it's me. And so what does the impetuous Peter do? Hey, can I come out there and join you? Right? He asks immediately. If it's you, why don't you let me walk on water? And so Jesus said, come on. And what happened? Peter jumps out of the boat and literally begins walking on water toward Jesus. Now, we are not told that Peter was fearful getting out of the boat. He was so inspired. There are times where the call of Jesus is so clear to us that we begin the journey in the complete absence of fear. But we are told that fear makes an appearance as Peter approaches Jesus. In Matthew chapter 14, verses 30 and 31, here's what the text says. But when he saw the wind... Have you ever seen the wind? If you've been out on the water and the wind is howling, you can see it. When he saw the wind, what happened to Peter? He was afraid. And beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me! Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why do you, did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Now, this is good. The word, the Greek word for doubt there is the word phobio. Guess what word we get from that? <clears throat> Excuse me, phobia. Do you, do you know what doubt there means? It means to be terrified. To cause to run away. To be frightened. Now understand what happened in just the span of seconds. Peter started out strong. He chose to leave the boat when Jesus invited him. Oh, by the way, this is important. The weather didn't change after he got out of the boat. The same weather. As a matter of fact, that's how Jesus could catch up to them so easily. 
Because the scripture says that the wind and the waves were buffeting against them and they couldn't make progress. It was bad weather that night. So when he got out of the boat, the weather didn't turn. It was already rough. The circumstances were, that he was in, they were the exact same. But once he got going, for whatever reason, Peter took his eyes off Jesus and began to focus on the weather. What was once a flourishing walk on water quickly turned into a nightmare. By the way, an illogical nightmare because I would contend that Peter could swim. So why the panic? He grew up on that lake. They had weathered many storms. It's the first time he'd ever walked on the water, though. So things that ordinarily wouldn't throw him off were literally causing him to sink. He focused on the wind and the waves. The circumstances that he thought would swamp him. And guess what happened? He got scared. He started out in courage. And he sank in fear. In fear, his faith, which was strong enough to get him out on the water, began to shrink. Remember what Jesus said, you have little faith. Fear led to doubt, and doubt caused him to sink. Listen, that is why courage is necessary to nourish our souls. We must overcome our circumstances, the very circumstances that threaten to sink us How do we do it? By choosing faith over fear. Whether it is to get us started or to keep us going, fear is fatal to flourishing, but courage, courage helps us overcome. Courage must be our constant companion if we're going to flourish in our identity in Christ Jesus. Listen, that's why we have to remember as soldiers that God has already seated us at His right hand. You are in Christ Jesus an overcoming soldier. If you are not in Christ Jesus, you're at war with God. But if you're in Christ, you're with Him. You're on the winning side. We need to remember that victory is ours. We need not fear. We need not Fear, we can trust God because the victory's already won. Listen to what God said through his prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 41. So do not fear. 
for I am with you. Don't, don't be dismayed, for I'm your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you won't find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. How, how is that? For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear. Do not fear. Because I will help you. You know what that scripture tells us? This is beautiful that just as Jesus was there to reach out his hand and save Peter from sinking, the resurrected Lord Jesus reaches out his hand to us. He says, I will raise you above your fears. You just have to have the courage to choose to take his hand. You just have to have the courage to choose to trust him. Listen, if you want your soul to flourish, you have to choose belief. You have to choose courage. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to choose the courage to accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord. You know, for some people, that's a very scary proposition. For all of our lives, we're in charge. And then all of a sudden, we understand that if we trust Jesus, that means He's in charge. That we, we submit to God's way. It's what good soldiers do, right? We follow orders. Yeah. We're soldiers. So it, it requires courage to place your faith and trust in Jesus. But can I tell you, I think it requires more courage to face the world we live in without Him than it does to face it with Him. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, listen, this is the, the best choice you can make. See, here's, here's the good news of the gospel, is that God loved you so much. We sang about it right off the bat today. God loved you so much that He sent Jesus to establish forgiveness for your sins and give you life, real life victorious, overcoming life. And we receive that gift by faith. Maybe today's the day you overcome your fear of trusting Jesus, your fear of what people might say, your fear of losing control, and the Holy Spirit's just drawing you to this great truth. That God has the best plan for your life. That God has a plan for your flourishing. And maybe today is the day you open your heart and ask God to forgive you 
and become his child, his friend, his bride, his body, his soldier. And if you're a believer and you want your soul to flourish, at some point you have to choose to nourish it with courage. Listen, I'm I'm not going to pretend that following Jesus is easy. It is not. That following Jesus is not scary. It is scary. But be strong and courageous. You need courage to follow Jesus wherever He goes. Wherever He leads. But that courage leads to flourishing. Be strong and courageous. Fear not, for God is with you. Let's bow our heads. Father, we are so grateful that the truth of your word reveals that those saints who have gone before us have experienced the same kind of fears we do. And Lord, they chose the same kind of courage that we can choose. We understand, Father, that what you have done for us should change the way we view life and live it. We understand, Lord, that you have seated us at your right hand, that you do see us as overcomers, as more than conquerors. But Lord, we're we're just going to be honest, we struggle to live in that victory. We struggle because sometimes we're afraid. I ask, Father, that today, by the presence of your Spirit, you would increase our faith to the point that we can choose courage for the next thing you call us to. Thank you, Lord for sending Jesus to be there to reach out His hand to pull us up when we fall. Thank you for sending Jesus to establish our victory. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room or online who doesn't know You, who has been rejecting Christ. I pray today, Lord, that because they have heard the truth, that they'll choose the courage to accept the truth. Thank you for the grace that sets us free. Thank you for the grace that helps us overcome. I pray today, Lord, they would receive that grace by faith. And Father, for those of us who walk with you, give us the wisdom to walk in courage fear not so we
can overcome our enemy. It's in the strong name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.